Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Professor Andrei Tsigankov. He is the uh, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at San Francisco State University, and he's the author of Russia and America, The Asymmetric Rivalry, a book that's out from Polity Press. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Tsigankov, Andrei, for, for being agreeing to be on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So we are recording this show at a time of both uh, just fascinating time in the relationship. Uh, we'll get into the terminology of rivalry, but for now, just call it the relationship between uh, Russia and the United States. And uh, I think it's particularly ap- appropriate and would be useful for uh, readers to uh, kind of step back and understand uh, this relationship, uh, in many ways, from the perspective of the Russian side and from a historical perspective, I think far too many Americans, and perhaps you'll agree based on your teaching experience in the U.S., far too many Americans have a very, very simple Cold Warish view of uh, an ideological conflict, uh, kind of a, a cage fight of ideas uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union, which is just so out of date that it's it's almost dangerous. So I think that your your uh, account of the asymmetric rivalry and putting it in historical context is is tremendously valuable. W- one of the things that you talk about in this, what I consider, and I'd like to start with in in this, what I view as a post ideological uh, age, is rivals, not enemies, and you know, really drawing a distinction between the classic Cold War and the current environment. Can you kind of lead us through that? Sure. That's the number one question that, that was motivated me, me in the first place. And I think the problem is that not just Americans, but Russians too, increasingly view this relationship as a new Cold War. And that is, of course, the 20th century analogy, which is very much outdated. We live in the entirely different world in which there is conflict between Russia and the United States. But that's about the only thing that unites the uh, contemporary situation and the 20th century situation. And the 20th century, what we had was really intense symmetrical structural conflict with sharp ideological divide between global communism and capitalism, with relatively fixed economic, political, uh, and even the cultural borders, not globalization. The contemporary settings are very, very different. The power is structured differently. Uh, it uh, allows us to use all kinds of means that were not possible during the Cold War. So in many respects, it's a more dangerous time than the Cold War. In some respects, it's less dangerous, but it's very different, and that's the point. That's why historically it makes more sense not only to place the Cold War in the context of centuries, but also to view the contemporary change 
as different from the 20th century and in some respects as different from the 19th century too because we no longer have uh, the uh, older structural conditions of the 19th century. We have the balance new- of powers, the great 19th century balance of powers. That's right. That's right. We have nuclear constraints too, and that's different. And we, we have now all kinds of new global settings, uh, ideological, cyber settings, and all of that allows small players, let alone Russia, which is a big player, to make a difference in the world of power relationships. And that's where we need to understand both how power is structured, how power works, and we also need to understand that the purposes of main actors, in this case, Russia and the United States, are quite different from the Cold War. Neither side aims to fundamentally win the war against the other side. The idea is very different. Both sides are prepared simply to structure the new world order. The old world order is changing, collapsing in many respects. And so the fight is simply for new stakes, for sheer in the new world order. That's fundamentally different. And that's where I think the uh, Cold War analogy is, in some respects, absolute useless. And also, do not, we need to remember, and for you as a historian, it makes probably even more sense, that the Cold War is a product of the 20th century. And the 20th century itself is an exception. It's the era of crisis, uh, in multiple crises in Russia, West relationships and great power relationships. And we now are back to normal. It's not quite the normal that we wish in multiple ways, but it still is not the old, uh, the age of extremes, as Hobsbawm used to call it. This is different. This is not a product of two major world wars in which millions and millions of people perished. And we need to understand that we are not in the state of war and we're not in the state of cold war. This is fundamentally different. Hence the term rivalry as opposed to That's war. Right. That's rivalry... Right. And I often, in my discussion of the relationship between Russia and uh, the United States, use the metaphor of chess. And high-level chess ends mostly in draws, sometimes in victories, sometimes in losses, but a lot of draws. And uh, you know, the, and that's a very common metaphor for describing the period of stability from 1814 to 19, 1815 to 1914 as well. The Grand Chessboard of Europe, uh, very very stable relative to uh, the 20th century. But it, it's hard, I think, many for, you know, for many Russians and certainly a lot of Americans, even circa 2021, to appreciate that change. I mean, that period of Cold War and on the edge, the, the bulletin of the atomic scientists being at, you know, a few seconds before midnight and nuclear destruction. Hard to get that out of everyone's thinking, but uh, we're, we're back. I'm not going to say back, but, you know, it is more reminiscent of, say, you know, 19th century rivalries as opposed to 20th century's threat of nuclear annihilation. That's right. That's right. And I think the reason, one of the reasons at least why it's been so popular is because it's fresh in our mind. It's only 30 years past. In most respects, in many respects, the same generation remains in power. They remember that experience and they bring it up because it helps them to make sense of the reality as they remember it. And for Americans, particularly for those who are in power, the Cold War was a very successful experience because they see it as a victory. And they, they of course, want, want to win again over Putin. 
And that's why they also bring up the met metaphor of the Cold War, because ideally they will defeat the new now post-communist enemy and they will triumph again in the 21st century will be American again. I think that also is psychological reality. So we, we have shifted from war to rivalry, but the other subtitle of your book is asymmetric, which is, you know, whatever happened in the 20th century happened in the 20th century, but it, it, uh, Russia came out the worst for wear. The United States came out somewhat dinged up, but the Russia came out the worst for wear. So you characterize this as, as asymmetric uh, rivalry. And you have sort of a, a political science section which characterizes in social science terms uh, what an asymmetric rivalry is to help us understand, create a framework, a post-Cold War framework for understanding every time the United States interacts with Russia, it's within this framework of asymmetric rivalry. How do you define that? What are the categories uh, of that? I, for those of you following along on your books, I believe they're on page 61. But uh, Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, asymmetric, asymmetric rivalry essentially means that one side is structurally stronger than the other, but the other side can still hurt their, their strongest side where it doesn't expect. Uh, it means that it has still ample means, political, economic, and military, to defend itself in this structural conflict because the power is structured in such an interesting way. And I think uh, Russia has asymmetric tools in both politics and economics. And of course, in some respects, it remains a symmetrical power. It has symmetric capacity in nuclear area. It's a near peer comparator in cyber area. But in other respects, what I think is often missed by international relations theories, particularly those whom we call realists, those who pay attention to geopolitics, American theories, American so-called neorealists, uh, is multiple, multiple nuanced di di dimensions of power. They often tend to measure power by aggregate numbers, GDP size, defense expenditures, size of the economy, demographic mass, and all of it, most of it anyway, is really useless in the contemporary climate, in the contemporary geopolitical settings. What we need to understand is that power functions differently and it's structured differently in global settings. And asymmetric rivalry means that Russia in this case, and not only Russia, but even smaller players, such as Belarus, for example, or others, might have some ways to assert their interests against stronger players. And it has uh, multiple implications. I mean, if we are to discuss Joe Biden's term, which is uh, only started several months ago, we already have been through two or three crises in the relationships with Russia. And that's in part because Russia has very important advantages with respect to Ukraine, because Russia has some very important symmetrical power advantages in cyber conflict. And in diplomatic conflict, it also has some ways to hurt the United States. So it has important implications for power one is that power is not only structural, but it's also relational. Uh, it depends on a particular situation. It's almost situational. If you remember US-Russia conflict over Ukraine, 
and we may be able to discuss it further, but Russia was able to assert itself in this case only by amassing sufficient amount of troops on the Ukrainian border, only by showing its capacity. Uh, the second implication for power, that it is both global and local. It cannot be measured in terms of aggregate GDP size only, but it's important to pay attention that Russia, for example, holds the cards in Ukraine simply because it borders Ukraine and because the border is open and because it has all kinds of advantages that the Western powers do not have in Ukraine. And third, as you noted, it's asymmetric in a sense that Russia does not aim in principle to fundamentally defeat the United States, but it is able still to stand its ground if it defines its interests in relatively narrow terms. Russia does not see itself as a global superpower, unlike the United States, but it certainly is able to assert its regional status, to defend its interests in Eurasian settings and in, in European settings. And oftentimes it is also willing to show that it has other capabilities, it has other capacity, nuclear, uh, military conventional capabilities, cyber capacity, and so forth. And it forces itself, almost forces itself on the other side to negotiate with. That's what I think is important to understand here. And, and again, it, just to make it grossly oversimplified, there would have been a time 30 years ago we'd be comparing steel production and cement production, east and west, and the number of tanks sitting in eastern Germany and western Germany. Those days are over, both whether it's aggregate or that particular type of conflict. And instead, what your book highlights, chapter by chapter, geography by geography, uh, form of, of uh, activity, form of activity, is the asymmetric relationship, in some cases, as you point out, where Russia has an advantage. Uh, Russia has shown itself very good, as you say, on the cyber front. Uh, they, they are uh, quite able to get into other people's computer systems. Uh, their backyard, meaning Ukraine or Belarus, is clearly their backyard. And selectively, what I think was, I think, significant value in the book, and kind of want to shift in this direction. We can circle back to Belarus and Ukraine to finish up. But going through some of the areas, some of the geography, where you see Russia picking its fights very strategically, very carefully, not in the interests of world domination but in the interest of having a seat at the table, the great power table, and being one of the negotiators. And I think the Middle East and the mess that is Syria and Iraq is, is the best example, particularly Syria, that with relatively limited resources and a very narrow agenda, not necessarily to win anything, but to stay part of the narrative, Russia has been very successful uh, in, in advancing its interests, perhaps at great human cost, but very, very successful. And what your book does chapter by chapter is go through those areas and shows the Russian perspective from a power, their power, great power perspective and their agenda, their history over the last decade or so and, and how they're pursuing that. Can you just kind of summarize the strategy in, um, in, in Syria and supporting Assad? I mean, it appears appalling from a Western liberal perspective, but it, Unfortunately, it makes perfect sense from a Russian perspective. Yes, it's the same idea behind this is that Russia will not insist somehow on fundamentally 
uh, evicting the West from the Middle East. It simply wants to show, to demonstrate that the international order cannot be structured only by the United States, that there are important advantages that Russia has in Syria and in the Middle East in principle. And that's in part in part because Russia uh, can utilize air power as it did in Syria without sending conventional troops. It has sufficient enough, sophisticated enough military capabilities, uh, primarily from the uh, air defense perspective and from air attacking perspective. It provides sufficient military assistance for Assad to survive. It provides sufficient leverage for uh, regional negotiations. Of course, we must mention other important players, first and foremost, Iran, that plays a major role in this conflict. And Russia was able, in this case, to capitalize on Iranian support for, for Assad. But structurally, it makes difference, it makes sense, simply because Russia, again, does not see itself as a superpower in global settings. It sees itself as a relatively a moderate power that has used relatively moderate, modest, even as Putin would say, capacity to protect an international system, the international order, to uphold, in this case, the traditional perspective on the international law, sovereignty and non-interference. And it has been able to capitalize on the United States global status, on the United States global uh, military and political uh, hegemony, and in some respects on the United States overstretching itself. The United States overstretching multiple ways. It sees itself as universal democracy, as universal power uh, that is responsible for all the problems across the world, for human rights in Syria and elsewhere. And Russia is much more limited in this in this case, and it has been able to capitalize on the United States overstretch military, political, and even ideological, because ideologically speaking, not too many countries in the Middle East, uh, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, want democracy promotion. They mostly think in different terms. They, th they think in terms of protecting their relatively narrowly defined national interests, economic and military interests. And that's why the language of upholding the international law rather than democracy promotion appeals to them better than the language of democracy promotion than Joe Biden and all the predecessors of Donald Trump used. As a result, Russia was able to accomplish something. It was able uh, to protect traditional sovereignty rule in Syria, to some, to some extent even in Venezuela, if we can use Venezuela as an example here, it has been able to um, establish relatively strong red lines in Eurasia. It has been able jointly with China to evict the United States bases from Central Asia, from Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan, where the United States used to have bases. And it becomes another important issue now that the United States is about to withdraw from Afghanistan where to leave the uh, equipment, whether or not to establish potential military presence in other places in Central Asia. It has been able to negotiate uh, relatively West-free 
uh, Caucasus, which is another area uh, close proximity to Russia, particularly after Armenian-Azerbaijan conflict. Turkey played a very important role, but ultimately it was Russia that brokered peace in 2020 and established its military presence there. Now Nagorno-Karabakh has Russian peacekeepers in the Caucasus. Uh, it has been able to make sure that Georgia and Ukraine are out of NATO at a hard price, as you mentioned. Uh, and that was not ultimately the, the best scenario for Russia. But if it came to this, Putin calculated that he would still be able, under all the circumstances, to keep these countries out of NATO, even at the price of frozen conflicts or recognizing sovereignty and independence of some parts of Georgia. Of course, eastern Ukraine is not recognized by Russia as independent, but that remains a possibility, distinct possibility, and, and in this respect, Russia also has important leverage. So it has been able to use these relatively uh, asymmetric capabilities in these areas, in geographic areas, in uh, sectoral areas, it has been able to demonstrate that it can pursue deterrence in nuclear area, it can successfully establish deterrence in cyber area, and right now the question is whether or not Joe Biden will be willing to negotiate some cyber pact, but right now the relationships are in a very different territory, and it's important to see that these negotiations are as necessary as nuclear negotiations. It has even been able to demonstrate using the global information area, global um, information, information capabilities, that it can, in principle, interfere in Western political space, uh, provide some assistance for Western opposition, particularly in European countries, and with some plausible deniability by denying essentially that it has done any interferences, it, it still has interfered in political elections, in 2016 U.S. elections, in multiple political affairs in European countries. So this is where, again, asymmetry works for Russia. Uh, and there are also costs, important costs for Russia. But it has been able at least to show that this particular power, structured in a symmetrical way, can be fairly effective. So let's, let's stop there for a moment because I want to draw a distinction between two points that you made. Sovereignty and non-interference appears to be you know, one of the driving forces, at least on the Russian side. It's more a game of chess and power and relations, but how you run your own country internally is sort of up to you. It's not an ideological battle. And that, uh, again, non-ideological approach to foreign policy is uh, after a, a century of 20th century, just too much ideology, <laughs> is it takes a while to get used to or take some history courses about the 19th century and you'll be familiar with it. But what you just said is where even for me personally, Russia crosses the line. And that is the notion that uh, the, Russia might be playing chess, occupying eastern Ukraine, uh, in furtive ways and establishing sorts of relationships and power relationships with all sorts of actors around the world to the best of its can is perfectly fit within your, your description of basically non-ideological rivalry. But it, direct interference in the elections in the West or uh, Prigozhin's uh, Internet Research Agency, which you know, 
dives deep into the kind of soul of America is uh, uh, something that I think is is different. It's almost outside the rules of the game that Russia has uh, thrived very well, and it's back into the ideological realm. I think that's rather a, a dangerous a dangerous part of the the rivalry is is uh, Russia's success at the asymmetric rivalry uh, getting too much, uh, uh, getting too ambitious. I, I, it, is of, of concern, and you can see this in the, it's concerns to me, this stunt involving uh, Belarus and Lukashenko hijacking an airplane in e, on an EU flight, internal EU flight, is you know a, a pretty bold chess move that could backfire pretty badly. Sure, sure, it could, and uh, Belarus is already uh, witnessing or seeing important negative consequences. It remains to be seen whether or not Russia somehow is involved and to what extent. Uh, but you raised two questions. The first one was about uh, whether or not interference in foreign countries' uh, politics is dangerous for those who are doing this, for Russia in this case. And to the extent that Russia did it, and then a very interesting and important question also to discuss um, what was the extent of it. Um, to what extent Russia really used the situation to its advantage, whether or not it was limited to social media, or it was also the hacking, uh, the DNC, and then leaking into WikiLeaks. Uh, that is an interesting question. The other dimension here is uh, what is considered a cyber interference? Should we differentiate it from cyber attack? or this is primarily about gathering information. Espionage and uh, direct cyber attack are two different things that should be distinguished. But in principle, I certainly agree with you that this is potentially a very dangerous game that Russia is playing. And the reason, to the extent that Russia is doing this, the reason why Russia feels that it's necessary, because it feels that this game has been played on it on multiple on multiple occasions for years after the end of the Cold War, United States interfered in multiple ways in Russian domestic politics through uh, financial means, uh, even by clearly stating preferences for particular candidates, even by going to Russia and stating that they prefer this particular politician not to run in the elections, as Joe Biden did in 20. Uh, 11, when he went to Russia instead of Vladimir Putin, that the United States expects you not to return to presidency. All of this is... For listeners unfamiliar with that, there was an interlude in Putin's regime or, or uh, period of control where Dmitry exactly. Medvedev was, was president, his, his right-hand man. Uh, under the Constitution at the time, Putin had served as much as he could as president, so he had his, his friend and ally serve as president before then returning. Sure, but the United States, of course, understood very well that Dmitry Medvedev, even though he was elected by 70% of the population, was really elected by one person, by Vladimir Putin. Because once Putin stated his preference for Medvedev as his successor, Medvedev was voted in. So when Joe Biden traveled in 2011 to Moscow and said to Putin that the United States expected him not to return to presidency, he knew who was the power broker at the time. And all of these examples, the 90s, particular 1996 elections when the United States practically brought Yeltsin to power, 
uh, all other economic financial interferences. All of this is now something that Putin decided crossed the line. And Russia, therefore, will show the United States a little bit of its own medicine. And the United States will, therefore, need to negotiate a cyber pact, non-interference pact. And ultimately, we'll be back to where we used to be. We will learn to respect each other's interests, each other's red lines, out of which, of course, the domestic politics, domestic stability, domestic regime is not to be touched. This is the red line number one. It is a very dangerous game, but that's the game that I think Putin decided that he's willing to play for the purpose of Russia's sovereignty and independence. So the, that is at odds with, and this is something you and I were discussing offline and in some correspondence and other work that we've been sharing, uh, you know, the, the American assumption of classical liberal democracy around the world is the assumption, and it's always on, it's on until proven wrong or turned off, I think most Americans think it's the natural order. And once they've traveled outside the United States, they see that, as you pointed out earlier in this interview, most people in many countries don't view it as the natural order. They prefer to a, a tidier or more orderly, a less chaotic system than, than liberal democracy. But I think it can be somewhat jarring uh, when um, American politicians who every third word in one form or another is classical liberal mm -hmm. democracy mm -hmm. that they are saying, no, actually no interest in that. And we're not going to move in that direction. And we're, we're not interested in your suggestions in that rejection. And so hence non-interference and respect sovereignty will, will run our country our way. You run your country your way. That can take some, some getting used to, particularly for newly elected politicians to say, to be told, mind your, mind your own business. For Russia, I think it's very comfortable. They, they are uh, used to saying that uh, to the West, uh, but with each new generation of Western politicians, it's uh, somewhat, sh uh, to me, stunning that it is still shocking, but it's shocking to them to be told, no, that's not, the, that's not how the world is, is going to be. We're not all suddenly going to adopt uh, classical liberal norms just because there's a new uh, administration in the United States. I agree. I agree. This, this is the uh, something that may be called even the national ideology. And that's where I think Putin miscalculates because he thinks that American policymakers understand pretty well how uh, the world operates, the geopolitics is number one priority. American policymakers often think in these terms, but they also are very much ideological beings, so to speak. They believe in this uh, liberal values, the ideas that liberalism is universal ideology, that the rest of the world will ultimately be just like we are, uh, liberal democracy. So this is where Russians misunderstand, underestimate how important values are to Americans. But the other side of it is also very important, and this is where Joe Biden and other future American policymakers will have to compromise, will have to compromise not on values, but on power terms. They will have to learn how to talk to those who have sufficient power to defend themselves and potentially to undermine their own systems. That does not mean that you give up on your own values. That simply means that you are being realistic about your own power capabilities. You can stand for your values, but you also can be careful in negotiating these values and ultimately in promoting those. And you have to be sensitive with respect to others' positions and values, the position that Russia 
simply is waiting to become liberal democracy is untenable. The position that Russia is only corrupt autocracy, there is nothing in there, is also untenable. Russians have been around for centuries. They have their own sense of what uh, ideology is, what values are, and how somehow the United States must have a sense that others may be different from its own ideas, from its own ideology. And difference does not mean threat. It simply means difference. Rivalry, not Cold War. So let's take it to the present time. This uh, interview uh, is being taped in late May of 2021. It will be available for a number of years. It has an evergreen quality. At least we try to keep them evergreen. Uh, but right now, is, you know, since so I got the book, read the book, and agreed to interview, we've had significant events occurring that are exactly in the nature of, of a uh, pretty dramatic moment in the chess, on the, in the chess game, on the chessboard. Uh, we have uh, Putin and Biden agreeing to meet, I believe June 15th, a couple weeks from now. And of course, we have the incident of the hijacked uh, uh, airplane and the uh, uh, Belarusian uh, activist being pulled off the plane and imprisoned. How, how do these two events fit into the asymmetric rivalry, or how, how do you think they should play out, or how do you think they will play out? I think they fit quite well. Uh, we have seen already a number of crises ever since Joe Biden came to power. Uh, some say that the most important crisis is over Ukraine. But let's remember that even before Ukraine, there was a diplomatic crisis when Russia recalled its ambassador from the United States for consultations and then recommended, quote unquote, to the United States ambassador to leave the country its own consultations. So there was a diplomatic crisis over, specifically over Navalny uh, and over the remarks, the uh, Putin killer remarks that Joe Biden made publicly. Uh, That crisis was very important. Then we approached the second crisis, uh, which is also not sufficiently discussed, and that one was over cyber capacity, over solar winds, and specifically of how, of how much Russia interfered in the, uh, in the company. And there is a distinction that the National Intelligence uh, Assessment made, the distinction between cyber attacks and um, uh, espionage, gathering information. Uh, Joe Biden uh, threatened that he will use cyber capabilities to attack Russia in response to solar winds. And Russia immediately responded to this, that it has its own capacity to counteract. It became very dangerous, potentially a very dangerous crisis. And ultimately, Joe Biden backed off and decided that he will not use the capability that the United States clearly has against Russia. Uh, We know from some research, from some statements by experts, that the United States even has malware planted in Russia's cyber capacity and infrastructure, and it can, in in principle, activate that malware. But it becomes extremely dangerous because cyber capacity is linked to potential, uh, potentially uh, uh, extremely important uh, infrastructure, energy in in particular, uh, and that will become then uh, viewed as unprovoked aggression by one side and then by another side. 
So Biden was wise enough to deflect this crisis by simply uh, implementing new sanctions over uh, solar winds, over Russian interference in uh, U.S. elections. So it was viewed as a package of sanctions uh, over Russian role in cyber area. That was the second crisis. And then only the third crisis was the crisis that is now widely discussed because it's not over yet. And that's the crisis on Ukraine. So Biden ultimately called Putin, which was very confusing because this was almost immediately after he called Putin a killer. He then called him to propose summit with the next several weeks, several weeks. Only yesterday Putin accepted. Uh, but clearly, they have a lot to discuss. Clearly, uh, Putin demonstrated to Biden that he has asymmetric and yet sufficient power uh, to inflict damage on the United States and to force Biden to negotiate. And Biden, I think, got the message. So there will be a very important conversation. And what's also important is that the crisis over Belarus, potentially very serious crisis, is not, at least at this point, and probably will not uh, lead to cancellation of the summit. We have seen this before. We have seen how uh, some events in Ukraine and elsewhere interfered with summit agendas and led to cancellation of crisis. Some of you might recall, Daniel, you might recall the Argentina summit schedule between Putin and Trump that was canceled over the Kerch threat crisis uh, in Ukraine. So in this case, it's not likely to happen, but it will certainly be a subject of discussion. And the subject of discussion in this case will be what are the red lines over the perceived sphere of influence uh, around Russia, particularly over Belarus, which is viewed as fundamentally essential for Russia, if not to control, but at least to influence foreign policy because Belarus is awfully close to potential areas of military crisis with NATO and Western military capabilities. So this is where it also fits quite well with the idea of asymmetric rivalry, because Russia has, in principle, the capacity to control Belarus, to undermine Belarus, and even to humiliate the United States in Belarus and in Ukraine, because, again, the United States is overstretched, United States cannot possibly defend Ukraine if Russia chooses to interfere. And that applies to Belarus as well. So the, the one of the parts of uh, definition, not necessarily your definition of, of asymmetric rivalry, though it does involve vassal states and proxy states. And to some extent, Syria is, is an example of that. But Belarus is emerging as a vassal state proxy state that is problematic. That uh, a successful asymmetric rivalry for Russia doesn't have uh, crazy people doing random acts, and that uh, Lukashenko's uh, behavior uh, undermines Putin. It does not help Putin. So I, I maybe we just disagree th there that he, it, Russia's ability to maintain order in its backyard requires maintaining order in its backyard, and Lukashenko is not helping in that regard. I, I think I agree with you, Daniel. I think that that is, to some extent, is similar to the role that some separatists in Ukraine played. They did not always act the way Russia wanted them. And uh, if uh, Malaysian Boeing, down in the Malaysian Boeing, for, 
was what they are doing. And then, of course, it was fundamentally disruptive to Russia's goal goals in, in Ukraine and Eastern Ukraine in particular. So, yes, you're right. And Lukashenko and Putin, as you may know, are not exactly friends. For many, many years, Putin wanted him to play a more active role in uh, Russia's integration, in Russia's Eurasian Economic Union. Lukashenko always wanted simply to get as much as possible financially from Russia while preserving its own control over the country, while preserving what he calls, rightfully so, state sovereignty, which is why Russia does not have military base in Belarus, except for radar station in Baranovichi, which is why Russia does not have a military airport in Belarus. It wanted to have military airport and military base, and yet it has not accomplished this, which is why we still do not have joint currency. Uh, that continues to be a matter of negotiations. Uh, there are some integration maps that are not yet completed. So Lukashenko is playing his own game. Putin is playing his own game. And quite possibly they, they will not be able to fully coordinate their roles and their power. Uh, that is unfortunate for Vladimir Putin, but that's the reality. And he will have to adjust and he will have somehow to take it in under. In, into account while negotiating with the United States as well. But the most important point for him, and of course, Belarus, whatever it does, is simply a small country, and Russia will still be able to have the leverage over it in, in most important issues. The most important point for Putin will be to show that there are important areas uh, that will never become members of NATO, that will never join the uh, potentially hostile military alliance that will have considerable uh, political and cultural space for Russia to use to its own interest, to its own advantage. And the question is whether or not the United States, in this case Joe Biden, will openly or um, uh, uh, covertly somehow acknowledge this and accept it as a reality and find a way to agree to disagree while pursuing some other very important interests because they have a very long list of those interests, not just nuclear stability, but cyber stability and others. So we'll find out in the next couple of weeks, we will have an opportunity to assess how this uh, asymmetric rivalry is going to work out. The book is Russia and America, the Asymmetric Rivalry by Andrei Tsigankov. Uh, Andrei, thank you so much for, for being on the show and, and sharing your thoughts on this uh, very dramatic and important time in, in uh, U.S.-Russian uh, relations. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel.